Boom. We're live with Daniel M. Ingram. Hi, Dan. Hey, it's great to be here. So pumped for this. <laughs> oh. Wow. Yeah, Dan's been crushing it in synthesizing. <laughs> he he just has. He distilled all of Buddhism pretty much into a very <laughs> relatable and straightforward approach. And then, you know, now he's up to incredible work with creating a bridge between science and spirituality to mainstream awakening and to make it more relatable for science to have its like clinical hands in um, and to funnel more funding towards it and to change the DSM-5 uh, to upgrade it. And I'm, I'm in awe at what you're up to right now. I am. You're doing it. That's you know, you're living it into being. Well, thanks. It's it's uh, it's exciting work. I'm lucky to be blessed with a, a, an amazing team of people that help me with this and are excited about this. So it's actually it's a huge community effort. Um, and it's, it's been actually there have been so many people who have been excited about some of these science, spirituality, clinical crossover projects that it's actually been incredibly easy to get people to to sign up and say yes and start pitching in time. Right? I mean, it's beyond due for it to happen. So it was really just like helping to light and facilitate and and sort of nurture a spark that really was just ready to blaze and dry grass not to you sorry for those of you who are enduring forest fires and the burning of the west coast or whatever i apologize if that was triggering but uh also but in terms of like my book synthesizing all of buddhism no 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 my, my book is like this much of buddhism buddhism is this huge vast amazing rich complicated thing which is why actually go out of my way to reference a lot of other people who did a lot of other great work to to synthesize other parts of it. And I really just tried to focus on the things that I like to my eye hadn't been done quite as well or in the way I would have done them, you know, but and focus on core strengths. But really there's it's been a huge effort to modernize, upgrade, translate, um, and bring um Buddhism into the you know Western context. So we can relate to it and it can relate to us and we come up with something that works. So yeah, it's, it's, again, that's also a huge collective project as well. I'm just one little part of it, but yeah, thank you. So let's put science and spirituality into, in the synthesis and all that good stuff into a little bit more downstream in our conversation. And right now let's hone in on, like you just indicated a moment ago, would you say that much of what you synthesized and distilled around Buddhism was around Theravada Buddhism. And then the difference being then there's also Mahamudra or Mahayana, Vajrayana. Is that sort of the distinction that you would make? And then we'll get into what exactly that is. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, actually, I'm interested. I'm influenced by a lot of traditions. So, if, if you picked up my book, you would find obviously some pretty strong Theravadan influences, which I'm, you know, make no bones about. I'm very excited about those. It's some great tech. And I think in some ways, some of the most practical and clinically applicable, it, it's it's got a, a straightforwardness to it. Zen is cool, mysterious and poetic and kind of like, you know, non-mappy, which is super groovy in its way and quite profound. And then the Tibetans are like super flowery and ultra complicated and lots of robes and hats and colors and deities and all that. But the Theravada you know, even though it actually is super complicated in its, in its forms, and actually I was just reading a really cool book called Esoteric Theravada that actually talks about how 
complicated and rich the Theravada sort of used to be and still is in a few places, but it was actually very Vajrayana-ish in terms of these elaborate systems of symbols and Pali words throughout the body and medicine and channels and implications and characteristics. And it actually used to be much stranger and actually still in a and more interesting and rich and diverse. And it's still in actually some places, if you go and um, see how this is actually operationalized in places like Thailand, particularly as you sort of get up in like the Northwest and some of the uh, more remote areas, like it's very mix of shamanic and deities and magic and and all kinds of stuff mixed in. It's, it's not straightforward. And you can still see Vajrayana and Mahayana influences even in it, even though they tried to kind of like get rid of all of that in the 1800s in Thailand and stuff and some other kind of reform movements, it's still there. So actually, it, Buddhism is way more complicated than most people think it is. It's this rich melting pot of diversity and even within single traditions, amazing complexity. I mean, like just if you said Zen or Pure Land or whatever, these are huge, complicated traditions with many different schools, teachings, texts, emphases, te you know, tips and tricks and so anyway, so it's a, it's an amazingly rich thing. And then like how that relates to Vedanta or Shaiva Tantra or, you know, what is Shingon? Where does that fall in? It's kind of, the, you know, and how did Taoism and the bone tradition or bone, how did these get blended into all of that mix? Right? This is, it's much more organic than people generally take it for. So, which is exciting, right? Anyway. Okay, so there's a view of this where Carl Jaspers calls this the axial age, and there's this explosion of spiritual yeah. awakening um, and the way that Buddhism, in a sense, can be visualized as this like fractaled out, similar to what you see like with um, Hinduism, also very fractaled out. Um, and now, like you also indicated, what's the relationship between things like these mystic schools like Dzogchen and Zen, uh, with Advaita Vedanta mm -hmm. and with uh, Gnosticism or Sufi metaphysics. Sure. And then there's all of these like mystic, like union, direct union with God. Um, and uh, so, so that's, that's a core. I would say that that was the core thing that I was pointed to in the last couple of years of studying, which led me to recognize myself as it and us all as it undergoing an exploration of, of infinite potential. And so then that's probably the core thing to remember as you look at all these little fractals of the spiritual tradition since that um, axial age explosion is looking for the mystic schools, looking for the ones that talk about the direct experiential path to unite with the kingdom of God inside of you and how to do that, um, that process. So I like that point. And then I like I like the practicality of Theravada specifically. I think it's very practical. Um, Vajrayana also has lots of practicality to it, um, as do many of the schools, but specifically with, I'd like for you to walk us through this so people can get this, because we love you. And the reason why, the reason why we're doing this in many ways is to help distill something relatable for you to help you with your everyday life. So Let's go through this. Would you say that the first principle is becoming aware of breath and therefore by becoming aware of breath, what we do is become regain sovereignty. We regain will from what was more scripted subconscious like behavior. 
Well, there's tons of places to start. I mean, breath is a great object and a great beginning, and it's used in a lot of traditions for a reason. But there's so many other possible starting points. I mean, you know, TM starts with a mantra, and some people start with visualizations. Or actually, I've used, I, I like candle flames these days and light casinos, which are old, actually, it's almost certainly pre-Buddhist tech. So that almost certainly comes out of whatever was there before Buddhism, um, which would be some old Upanishads and, you know, uh, Etc. influenced uh, technologies. But um, yeah, and some people start with prayer and some people just tune in naturally. They're not using any object at all and they just enjoy the, the inner journey of seeing what is there when they just look without filters. And then of course, Dzogchen and Mahamudra would just start with sort of, well, actually those are really complicated traditions. I should be careful here, but the pop versions of Dzogchen and Mahamudra should, would start with just kind of being in the space as object and result. And then you get the, you know, the non-dual pointing traditions that just say, this is it. And they're right, you know, but there is more to it, but still they're right. And so if you were talking like, you know, Adi Ashanti, you know, I shouldn't speak for him, but it's going to be just like, what is the thing that makes you think this isn't it in general, like without a, a real necessary focus? I mean, you know, he's more, you know, I shouldn't speak for these people, but you get the idea. And so there are actually lots of ways not only are there are lots of paths up the mountain, as it were, but there's a lot of places to start on each of these paths. And even within the Theravada, you know, some might start noting the breath and is the breath here or is the breath there? And some might start with walking and some, you know, and then Zazen would just be just sitting kind of and practice enlightenment, which is also kind of an immediate pointy tradition. And, and others are like very inquiry based, like, who am I? What is this? You know, they're using a question to focus you back on what is observation or what is awareness or consciousness. And I actually think that any of those and more could be interesting places to start. The thing that got me into this was visualizing large spheres that I would practice flying between. That was the first thing that really made my consciousness explode and start having weird things when I was a teenager. And that was just a homebrewed weird visualization to have better flying dreams. You know, like, so like, and I know other people who without anything to start having insights. And then you get the reports of the spontaneous realizers who just woke up and they weren't doing anything. They were, some of them just kids, right? Like Punjaji, the Buddha of luck now, apparently he was just seven and kind of something changed. And then like, he thought that was just normal. And then when he got older, he realized, no, wait a second. Most people don't perceive the way I, the world, the way I do. Oh, wait, this is, oh, wait, maybe this is awakening. Yeah. And, and you know, seems to have been so, you know, there's lots of places to begin anyway. Sorry for you know, getting that broad. Was great. On that was really great. You, Cause to give us that broad buffet of entry points also enables people to realize the straight up diversity of entry points, which is huge. But what is most practical for unfreezing will and regaining sovereignty? It seems to become aware of this sort of bell curve of arising and passing. If you sort of see yourself as the sky, the very simple childlike analogies is like awareness is the sky. And then the thought, the thought cloud appears and then it disappears, but you have to become aware of it appearing and disappearing rather than biting and fixating and grasping and craving and averting. And that, that seems to be the most, would you say that that's the most sort of simple childlike cloud versus sky juxtaposition and, and working on the breath work to help you with that? Yeah. So each of those metaphors, every time you introduce a metaphor or a concept or a frame, you do some good things and you do some not so good things. So for example, 
Um, I would totally agree that the ability to see thoughts come and go as objects is like one of the most critical things. And and the tradition of mindfulness, for example, which you know is a, a very simple technique takes that and uses it for all it's worth, as do a lot of the direct pointing or some of the inquiry things, or even koans. Just when you see the thoughts of the koan as object, that obviously in its way is profound. And um, so, yes, in some ways, that is one of the most critical things. And then if you can actually deepen that a little bit and notice all the intentions that make up thoughts, like the sort of the, 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 the thing, okay, I'm going to move my hand, I moved my hand, and then the recognition I did move my hand, and all that monitoring process along the way, that back and forth iterative, really fast thing, those are also kind of in the categories of thought to most reasonable, you know, by most reasonable ways of thinking about it, though there are others. And so, like, each of those super quick little thoughts, like, those can, you know, the, the things, the mental impressions that think they know something well, they're actually just little mental impressions here that don't look really anything like the things they thought they knew, and the intentions to create things just arose naturally. So if you actually take that basic concept of seeing thought as thought and they come and go far enough, it can totally deconstruct the sense of time, of doer, of knower, of beer, of continuous entity. Um, but then when you put it against the frame of a stable space in, through which things come and go, you create a bit of a problem. And it's a problem that early on and, and in the intermediate stages is actually a benefit because it points to something really skillful about an open vastness of experience that is much more able to deal with little petty stuff in a way that's not all contracted into it and doesn't activate the default mode network. So that's super cool, right? Um, but you create a, a problem later on down the road for those of us who also would say that space is transient, that awareness is transient. So what you get as a side effect of then a lot of people get very good at solidifying a sense of a stable space as a watching consciousness that then has no changing elements to it, which those of us who are hardcore Theravadans would they say, yeah, but you could see that come and go too. And when you do, it'll do something better. So that's where suddenly I've pissed off some Vedantists and people who think there's a stable luminous all ground. My apologies, but just realize there's debates in this tradition and, you know, do your own experiment and see which works for you. Um, and at various times, like that kind of open awareness concept can be incredibly skillful. So even sometimes it's worth dealing with the later side effects or golden chains that you might create when you introduce that um, still can be quite a good idea to get people through some of the rougher stages and help them get some space around their challenges and traumas and, and neuroses and all that. So, so definitely I would agree. That's, that's a really key point. Yes. Cool. So almost as though what we feel for the mainstream is like where, for example, I was five years ago and where typically you, people like you were decades ago were like, you know, how do I, suffer less uh, is yeah. the typical question. Like how do I experience more happiness and uh, joy and peace? And so the, the answer that we're providing is becoming aware of the simple childlike analogies like we're using where the thoughts are objectified as clouds that arise and pass in the sky of awareness, but not to get um, fixated on that analogy. Because what ends up happening is you unpack more and more deeply um, what the natural state is of existence, of reality. And so I love that. I feel like that's a key insight is to, is to recognize that you're creating a, a ground that you want to actually not be fixated on because then it allows you to move past that ground as you unlock 
deeper and deeper insights that free you more and more. Yep. Okay, so that's beautiful. Okay, and then now as you become more sovereign and you feel like, okay, I used to, this is an analogy that I feel like is so common for, for people. Um, sometimes before you know it, this is probably one of the most common ones is before you know it, you have, you're eating a, a pint of ice cream before mm. you know it. Right. And then what typically happens is um, maybe uh, you used to just go through the whole thing. And now what you've started to notice is you're halfway through it. And now you're like, I shouldn't be eating this just because I'm sad and like, I want to eat this right now. Um, and so you, now you're halfway through. So now you've got, you there are worse coping property. mechanisms, by the way, like if that keeps <laughs> you from doing something worse, maybe the ice cream is better unless you're a bad diabetic, in which case be careful kids. But you know, like they're, they're okay. But yeah, I hear you. Sure. <laughs> cool. So disclaimer. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and so we have this, this example where you feel like you're actually regaining sovereignty, you're regaining will because now you're only halfway through and you've realized that. And now next time what is what's what's arising is you're you realize that the, the thought cloud of I should eat ice cream right now arises and you see it. You have like this awareness of seeing it. And then you're you're not biting and you're not fixating on it, and then it dissolves. And before you know it, you're like, I don't, I didn't really actually want to eat ice cream. I just watched that appear and disappear. And so, okay, so now you can see these like practical examples. Or for for guys, another common one is that they feel like this this primal erection, and they feel like this primal desire to want to go and watch porn and masturbate. And if you sort of just relax yourself and you can sort of watch your, your hard erection dissolve, you can watch that urge to want to go and, and masturbate dissolve. And another one for guys that's pretty common is that they feel like that they want to go and do stuff. Like men are all about doing and acting. And what happens if you just sit on the couch and do nothing? What happens? is that you become more and more like relaxed into, a, again, a very spacious sense of, in a sense, emptiness. Like you're watching things arise and pass without acting and you're just noticing the nature of your mind itself. And so you're regaining will, you're regaining sovereignty by doing these styles of acts that you're typically programmed to not do. And in doing so, you're gaining will, you're gaining sovereignty. And then you're, you feel like, you're becoming more awakened and you're less conditioned. So this seems to be like the most um, simple mainstream visuals and relatable examples. Do you feel like that's resonant, stuff like that? Absolutely. And there's a great book uh, on this, by the way, called The Craving Mind by Judd Brewer, which I just, yeah, it's, it talks about a lot of this kind of tech. And he's done a lot of work with addiction and cravings and stuff. So very skillful. Um, cool work and, you know, backed by a bunch of neuroscience as well. So that's neat. And, um, and so definitely in terms of a practical, practical example, and sovereignty is a very interesting word because the, the relationship between the sense of control and the sense of will and ego and the sense of natural unfolding 
is this very strange thing in the world of meditation and spirituality, right? With all these, I mean, practically, people not only notice, wow, I seem to have no control of my thoughts or my body, but they also then will notice, wait, as I meditate more, I do seem to have more control of my <laughs> thoughts and my body. But wait, I'm noticing more and more the degree to which I both do not and do have control of my thoughts and my body. And so it's this very weird thing. And then like is spiritual awakening to gain complete control of everything is a truly separate entity that somehow seems to stand outside of all other biological conditioning and causality as a true sovereign thing that somehow is a true self separate from all conditioning or is it to recognize like no will but thine and to totally dissolve into the natural unfolding of the universe or, or whatever and the unfolding of the Tao or whatever so there's so one just has to um, realize that along the way one is likely to run into experientially, very practically, both skillful applications of the sense of will and control and the sense of sovereignty, as you put it, but also skillful appreciations of the natural unfolding of things. And so that's one of those fascinating dances that there's endless schools of thought on and advice on, but I just want to kind of point that out, right? So, and both have their points. Um, actually, the, the way the Theravada kind of breaks this down, which I like a lot, is basically the first, so the Theravada, like going back to old Theravada basic tech, right, is three trainings, right? And actually a lot of the schools of Buddhism would kind of appreciate the three trainings or the eight spoke wheel of the Dharma or the eightfold noble path, which is broken down into three basic. And the first one is sila or shila, which is going to be, you know, can translate as ethics or morality or good behavior or something, which is basically skillful use of body, speech, and mind, right, you know, right thought, right livelihood, right action, right speech, those kinds of things. And then, um, so, and then thinking about like how, and that basically assumes that we have control of our bodies, that we can follow precepts, that we can direct our minds to things, that we can say better things or send love intentionally to other people or, or intentionally try to be more equanimous in situations. It very much has the assumption explicitly baked into it as a fundamental thing of will, of sovereignty, of doer that can do better, that through paying attention can learn to do better in the face of this human mammalian experience. And then there's the second training, samadhi or you know concentration, um, which often is called shamatha practices or something, which would be the, the fact that with will, we can suppress the hindrances of doubt and fear and anger and desire, or whatever. We can kind of push those away and instead calm down, stay with our meditation objects, do something really deeply skillful with our minds that gets into you know blissful or peaceful or exotic states of consciousness, right? Or do magic or whatever. And But that's still very much expressly kind of involving a sense of will. But now it's starting to get a little weird because the higher genres actually talk about with the dropping of applied and sustained effort and energy or attention, you can get into the higher state. So suddenly it's got this weird thing where you start off with the assumption of will and control and technique and, and suppression of bad things and cultivation of good things. But then to get farther, you have to be able to kind of roll with the flow. And so suddenly it's getting a little strange. And then you get explicitly to the last training of insider wisdom, which starts straight out of the gate with three characteristics that none of this is you, that it's all just the natural unfolding of causes and conditions, that it all changes and there's no separate observer, doer, controller, beer. But for most people to do that, they kind of need to start with some will-based assumptions, right? 
And then even most of the, like, you know, the Catholic mystical tradition explicitly says, you know, you try to purify yourself through effort and eventually God or Jesus just takes over, you know, and divine spirit just comes through you. And you find similar things in basically all the traditions because it's just part of the the weirdness of the spiritual path, right? Are you doing this? Is it doing this? And where do those lines begin and end, right? So, um, yeah, this is the deep questions that are fun to explore in one's own heart, mind, body system and space in general. Yeah, I'm so happy that you took us there. Across the mystic traditions, there seems to be this similarity where there is a realization that the individuated firework has where it goes, okay, I initially was coming from a place of what felt to be more scripted behavior and patterns that weren't my own, that I didn't pick up, that were more around conditioning. And then now, is that still the divine? Yes, it is. Um, but then you realize that, okay, well, where can I actually unfreeze some of that will and choice and, and pattern and behavior where I can actually have more sovereignty to not in not grasp and not fixate and not be scripted and instead focus like turn inward and recognize well this is the kingdom of god this is the Tao. this is it and so now in a sense that i am that that becomes clearly me i unite with that force that i was the whole time but that was apparently veiled through what was maybe more limbic or more primal or more scripted styles of behavior and clouded choice. And so I love that sort of focus on uh, first is unfreezing will and choice. And then second is the relinquishing of said frozen, uh, the said will or choice that was regained into that uh, metaversal Tao, um, as you could say. Yeah, that's cool. Great yeah. distinction. Absolutely. And, and I think that's really important for mainstream to recognize is that you're both going to go through a process of knowing yourself and your unique frames of life and then unfreezing more and more will and choice into both like self-actualization and self-realization, um, both. And then you're going to go through a process of surrendering that to the force that gave rise to you because you recognize that that's the same force that gave rise to everything and that it's all one intelligence undergoing this dance with itself. Well, it's interesting how you use ontologies, right? Because you, you're, you're, uh, it's, it's fascinating to see the degree to which you're a, kind of a dyed-in-the-wool perennialist in terms of your ontologies. And if I can just talk about ontologies real quick, because I think it's sure. an important point. Like I've probably said this before on some podcasts, but if if as a scientist or as a person who appreciates Bayesian thinking, where you start with some hypotheses, you put initial, you know, guesses that these things are true, and then you do some experiment that hopefully moves you in some direction to get a better sense of which of those might be true. Like if someone said to me, like, here's four hypotheses. One is that this is all a matrix. This is all in a computer simulation. Speaking of simulations, we had to bring that in somehow, right? Or two, this is all the dream of the great god Vishnu, 
or Brahma or Indra, pick your favorite god you think is dreaming this. Or three, this is all solipsism that my mind or your mind or somebody's mind is actually creating all of this. And there's just one of our brains that just happens to be doing this, regardless of whether or not we recognize that. Or four, that that consciousness is some like emergent property of insight you know, sorry, insensate particles and forces, hand wavy, hand wavy, hand wavy emergence that then leads to consciousness, right? And so, and someone said to me, okay, you know, pick one of those or like, you know, assign pretest probabilities to each of those. Well, I have no idea how to do that, right? Which is more likely, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure I could tell for certain. And then someone said, okay, do an experiment that would then, you know, that hopefully good experiments will, you know, flush out bad priors and then lead towards truth. Well, I don't even know what experiment to do. And in my own practice, I have actually had, you know, experiences that at least in the moment were unbelievably compelling in terms of I am in complete control or this is totally just the dance of the unfolding universe or, you know, like everything is totally just mind made and is all utterly up for grabs and seemingly as constructed and arbitrary as anything or like, no, truth is, truly this seems to be the unfolding of a divine godlike, unbelievable intelligence that can know, create, do all this and all power, knowledge and wisdom and everything and unfolding and creation and destruction are that, not only come from that, but are that. And I've, you know, and, and all of this is dissolving emptiness and none of it truly exists. And like, I've, I've had past life experience with where I was some massive being that could see parallel universes and see all these possible options of pathways to go down and could then throw its life consciousness somehow down one of those pathways that it considered optimal after eons of exploration. So it is a totally multi-universe. And that seemed incredibly compelling and psychologically transformative somehow. And yet I've also had experiences that seem to say even this single universe cannot possibly hold up to scrutiny. There can't even be anything other than this dissolving moment. How is there? There's no possible true past or true future. And each of these experiences I've had as compellingly as I could possibly imagine such that in the moment they seemed like, of course, that is true to the very marrow of my bones or whatever and 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 yet like then i'm left with just pragmatism at this point <laughs> like what really helps lead to good outcomes and what seems to make a difference in terms of reducing suffering um i actually find that as interesting actually way more interesting now than any of the ontological questions except as various adopted ontological frames might help you as a person given your conditioning or tradition or culture or background or aesthetics or whatever have better outcomes right so i actually think there are reasons for practically adopting certain ontologies because i've seen people who just adopted one and fixed on it and it was unbelievably good for them no question and i've also seen people who thrive in the metaverse of meta ontologies and you know trying them on and off like you know people in a dressing room at a clothing store and just having fun with that, like playing costume and dress up just cause it's a good time and we can, you know? And so, uh, and so I can appreciate both of those perspectives, but just because you dance around the meta ontology verse, you know, very comfortably, which is great, you know, but just recognizing that there are other people that like, no single ontologies and single traditions like do work well for them. You know, and that and this notion of doubt or confusion that comes from that is just really confusing to them. And so just sort of throw that out there. Um, yeah. 
this really also plays into the perf perfection as it is. And so therefore there's not a, <clears throat> there's not a, there's not a tendency or a desire to go and change um, said a configuration of what reality is right now, um, given any of these individuated fireworks. And so this content is a mechanism that we generate together out of play and then, uh, yeah. then, and then out of somebody else's interest in uh, the unfolding of what could be a higher possibility for themselves, potentially extract something useful from it and whatnot. And so that's a critical lens to see things as is the, the lens of both the, that all is perfect and the lens of the individuation that is using their unique ontology. Cool. And then the individuation that's able to thrive by switching between ontologies, these different lenses of perception, also cool. And to like be able to see that rather than that, oh, to you have to switch to seeing all the different lenses at any time. So that's really, um, critical because actually over time, what will happen is that um, potentially even across lifetimes is that the, the mind will over time uh, decontract itself from the single viewpoint um, towards the all, the viewpoint of the all. Um, and that that's potentially what is uh, unfolding is that um, the more that you see the all, um, the more that you have a, a holistic take on the unfolding. This is actually a good question to ask next is that would it, would it be fair to say that there is then a shift that goes from this egoic contracted separate energy to what feels like a more free, formless, aware, conscious energy? And then from there, there seems to be the, the two-sided coin of what is a, an absolute empty nothingness and an absolute infinite creation. And do you, how do you feel about that, um, that style of kind of like notches back? Yeah, that's a pretty good map actually. And um, yeah, and recognize that just maps like that are gonna have a cyclical component, right? Where most people will go through a lot of different like little cycles, like your shirt, big cycles and super big cycles of kind of relating to each of those kind of modes of appreciating things. And I think, yeah, I think that circular nature is critical to point out because I think a lot of people like after some big unitive experience where when like, you know, what I would call like a rising and passing away stuff or maybe equanimity, they then get into some experience where everything is kind of dissolving or disappearing or kind of not there. They feel at one with everything and then that everything isn't stable. And then wait, what does that mean? And then like, this isn't stable. And like, and then all of a sudden it's all open and flowy and luminous and clear and divine again. And then it's all contracting again. Like just recognize that is also the nature of this path kind of like weather. And I think most, I think where a lot of people go wrong, particularly when they've run into some beginner meditation instructions or techniques or theories, is that they kind of assume some linear progression of like more control or more concentration or more focus or more silence or more whatever. And then reality doesn't do that. And then their model wasn't quite adaptable enough or their technique 
range or sense of tools and tricks in their tool bag couldn't kind of adapt to the funny things that the universe then does, which might be con very contracted or, or expansive or integrative or fragmented or dissolving or coalescing or whatever, because those are all things that experience does and can do them more and more and more dramatically as we get deeper into this or people take psychedelics or have other powerful experiences through whatever modalities. And just, I think it's important to keep in mind that it's good to not be too fixed on one's models, even one's models of progress. Like I will go through, you know, sovereignty and then I will go through detachment of energy and then I will go through nothingness, allness or something. Right. But just like a lot of those kinds of themes may roll through at various points. And then, and because I think people can get sort of confused by the, the sense of order or hierarchy or whatever. And most people have their preference for one. Some people super like unitive states. Some people super like dissolvy states, like the more aversive types. Some people super like rapturous states, the more, you know, uh, uh, so, and some people super like, yeah, um, really like expansive calm states, right? And so they'll kind of usually kind of gravitate towards a tradition that kind of, um, uh, gives one primacy, right? But then reality might do all these other things that aren't the things they like the most or their tradition emphasizes the most. And then I think that can be confusing to people. So just recognize if you're, we're all on this journey to some degree, right? Just, you know, be able to have a tradition that can kind of roll with the range and be wary of pure, perfectly linear progression models that are all going to work out like everybody thinks they will. So if that's helpful, not that all those experiences might not unfold in that progression, they totally might. Yeah. That's a really helpful insight because you're gonna end up cycling yourself into more advanced ways of perception. Mm -hmm. And that, that in a sense is kind of what the nature of reality feels like is this, uh, is this augmentation of perception over time, basically. Um, and that the, Now, is that, is that not to say that out of infinite exploration that there may be actually what appeared to be um, a period of um, perception increasing in some way, but then also turning into a serial killer, um, which is actually deemed as not an augmentation in, in perception. So it's not always um, necessarily portrayed that way, but as a, as a general universal cosmological phenomenon, not necessarily at an individuated level, but at a universal cosmological phenomenon, it does appear like awareness becomes um, more uh, aware of what its point is of what the explorative point is of what's of what's happening, and then it does things like well, you can yeah, please please hit that, and then I'll I'll go into some of the other questions. It sounded like you had an insight there. Yeah, so I mean, in terms of cosmic, when you say cosmic, do you mean in time scale or in the size of space? What do you just so I I react properly to the word, like you mean over like eons or over. What does that word mean to you? So I understand how you operationalize it and can address it yeah, more good question. thoroughly. If we were to play with what appeared to be one of the most simple childlike ways of visualizing the nature of reality, it seems like it's a, uh, 
a single infinite unified intelligence that in a sense refracts itself into differentiation based on um, these the generation of these un of these universes so generating these universes um, in its process of a play to differentiate itself as these entities in a sort of play, in a sort of exploration of that infinite possibility. And that in this refraction, there's like an ascension that looks like a metamorphosis. It looks like the caterpillar turns into a butterfly. And so um, that's what I would say is uh, the, that appears to be the nature. Um, Do you and, want to yeah, talk about yeah. some of the experiences you had that led you to those to those insights and how those happen? Do you ever talk about yourself on this podcast? <laughs> oh, you're so sweet. Um, I actually have a, um, along with these interviews, I do these like direct disseminations of what feels like is the awesome. most like, yeah. That, that, I, I, felt I apologize like, if it, I've not seen all those. No, 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 not at all. And it actually, I would, I would say that this is becoming more and more important because um, we just had like Kurt Geimungel on the show who also does these incredible interviews on theories of everything. But now here's the thing is that are these interviewers and are these um, polymaths, are these people that are scraping from science and spirituality? I would say it's also beautiful for them to undergo a process of can I distill what I've learned into these little 15 minute videos and stuff like that. And so I would say that that's a really important process for people to do. And so, um, so just to hit the ball back for, for a moment there is how does the, what I shared with you, those two analogies, how does the, that, that, that infinite intelligence refracting itself into the differentiation that then looks like a, a metamorphosis in its ascension, how does that um, resonate with you? I have definitely had some experiences that would lend a lot of resonance with that kind of a view um, in various contexts. And I very much appreciate that kind of vibe. And for people who have had those kinds of experiences, however you got to them, um, I think they'll also be resonating with this and going, well, yeah, of course. But I could also see how there might be totally different interpretations of experiences that could lead to those senses of a cosmically waking up, evolving, metamorphing, and um, embryo embryologically developing or maturing universal intelligence. And so, um, uh, whereas one could see all of those as just, I mean, because you could get super Theravadni about this and go, well, actually, those meanings are also just arising little fragments of stuff that happen as this natural unfolding of, say, the four you know foundations of mindfulness, or the aggregates, or the six sense doors, you know, or the one sense door, where really there's just the primacy of immediate experience, and one can find, if one truly just looks at this as raw sense data, as raw as we have access to, obviously it's pretty pre-processed, it seems, before we get it, but that there is literally nothing but this unfolding immediate experiential moment and any thoughts of a past or a future or a continuous evolving consciousness or an intelligence are just these little meaning flakes that kind of fragment and just occur in this immediate moment. And so even one can find no continuous, stable, evolving intelligence that could become 
become anything that could be anything. Instead, we just find this immediate scintillating, uh, luminous, empty, transient, present dance, right? And so I could totally then throw that back on you and you know and but i i can appreciate the beauty of both and so i think i think those kinds of senses of developmental consciousness that have a sense of a past and a future to them and take those at face value focusing on the meaning rather than the immediate essence of the experience that has mythic resonance that is super powerful and beautiful and plays to parts of myself that have experienced things that made me think stuff exactly like that and go, well, yeah. And then there's another part of me that goes, but yet to try to actually find any true past or true future or even stable present is impossible. And so how could there be anything that's continuous and actually evolving rather than just this? And I have deep mythic resonance with both of those and have gotten a lot of practical utility about exploring both. So if just to richen it up a little bit, what are your thoughts? Oh, gosh, that was so good. So it's almost like mythic resonance plus simply this. Both delightful and I think really important and different sides of ourselves thrive on both of those kinds of ways of knowing and being. So uh, if you look at the work of Rob Berbea or plenty of people who have drawn on his stuff, um, or, uh, yeah, you can, you can see, um, a, a lot of people who are talking a number of podcasts I've been on talking about very validly that the mythic archetypal, um, sides of ourselves that respond to those kinds of big grand stories and explanations, regardless of anything about their immediate dissolving emptiness or whatever, like it's important to, to, to deeply explore those sides of ourselves because that actually drives a tremendous amount of human behavior as well as wars over religion, as well as incredibly visionary, you know, next steps in technology. And, you know, if, if you look at people who had these incredibly visionary mythic experiences like Rene Descartes or clearly Newton or Einstein and suddenly, you know, or countless artists and poets and authors and mathematicians and, you know, like some, they had some vision of something like that. And then something super cool and awesome came out of it. Yes. Right. And, and on the other hand, so it would be, it would be cruel and, and really missing half of the party to just simply this, that, you know, <laughs> right. It would seem, and yet from another freeing point of view, to be able to simultaneously have the option to simply this, those incredibly mythic story things is also really valuable. So I Perfect. think it's good to have the optionality and the fluency to be comfortable in both realms as comfortable as any of us can be in any of this. It kind of also <laughs> reminds me of map and no map. Absolutely. That's the same problem. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's great. And so, and that's <laughs> good. And that, that was brilliant. Yeah. Nice. That was so good. And then it also, <laughs> and then it also rings for this true simultaneity. So can you truly simultaneously be able to have both a mythic resonance lens and a simply this lens lens or a map lens and a no map lens simultaneously? Yeah, and obviously that's what reality is doing anyway, but it is definitely possible to become more and more, let's just say, awake to that. Yeah, no question. Perfect. Um, and eventually, like they seem the same. The the thoughts of myth at once can convey their full, full range human, emotional, deep, you know, psychological, archetypal, universal, and 
you know, consciousness or whatever resonance while being experienced as just dissolving empty things now. That's actually what, you know, a lot of the maps would then point to that as being essentially the grand cosmic existential, experiential, and spiritual punchline, you know, or one of them anyway. So, yes, this definitely feels like one of the core cosmic punchlines is that you, there's both this, there's this, there's this inward attractor, which is like map me. It's like map <laughs> me, understand me, uh, that kind of a thing. And then there's another attractor, which is basically like, I am eternally, infinitely creating and um, you're never going to be able to bound me ever. So why create yeah. any maps? And I love, yes. And I love those two attractors being able to hold them simultaneously. It almost, it almost seems to be the point is, can you awaken it enough in the creation to where you can find the other expressions of yourself that can play tennis um, where you can get as close as possible to understanding the one intelligence and what it's doing? Um, and how it's playing part yeah. of the part of the game and, and to yeah. actually bring back in some of your earlier stuff you were very validly talking about about learning to see thoughts as thoughts like when people get run into the maps the first thing they usually do is totally fix on them and forget to see the thoughts of maps as thoughts right and so that can be kind of there's a learning curve and a maturation <laughs> curve in that and instead they totally obsess about become desirous of think are true things with a true a, a true meditator that will be there in a true future that will have a true attainment that is a stable actually thing they could hold or that somebody could hold it or whatever right and they they forget the basic things they learned along the way and so there is a maturation about all maps but there is a way eventually to learn to have maps just be more colors, textures, meanings, implications of, of you know, development that just arise in this moment and do sort of self-liberate as the Tibetans might, you know, call it or the, the co-rising of wisdom and emptiness and compassion, just uh, sort of happening, You the, the built-in nature of map thoughts being the answer to the maps they're seemingly a map to um uh they you know that that process is definitely how people when they run into maps then get better <laughs> yes <laughs> and get over it uh yes. because this is of course still it um and then it's just a question of that doesn't mean maps can't be incredibly useful i'm actually a super map geek i probably have literally 100 books or more on the shelf behind me that are variants of maps of spiritual progress and attainments and awakenings and goals and techniques to do that and all that you know countless um yeah so for example this one if you've seen this one right this is a map to this moment so people use these maps to stumble towards this moment as fast as they can possibly go um, but still, something in that stumbling based on map fixation of a true future can be incredibly useful. Yeah, and this is my like map geekery, and it actually gets way worse than this. Um, this is this doesn't involve all the subjanas and subjanas and subvariants and and all of that, right? So this is the light end of my map weirdness. Um, but still, hopefully, it's hopefully something that people can use. I mean, I've found maps incredibly valuable, right? They were very validating. They helped me avoid common pitfalls. They helped normalize experience. They helped me prepare for what I might be going into such that I wasn't as surprised by it or shocked by it. They helped me with issues of timing and technique and, and also just gave me tremendous faith 
that, wow, if this part of the map was true, maybe the rest of it's true, that kind of stuff, which is a mixed blessing because mixed quality of maps I was working with. Um, but yeah, but you know, that said, some people are also really like, and here's the other problem. There's, there's the problem of, of people who love the maps and do well with the maps. Cool. They see a map and they can follow it well. They can hold it with appropriate maturity. They can use it to investigate their immediate experience. They don't become all future fixated on it. And then there are people who don't love the maps and do great not loving the maps. You just say intuitively feel into the the cosmic oneness or whatever, or you know, or just be with this. And they just do that. And they don't need a map. They're just here. And then you find the other two quadrants of the mix, and that's where the problems come in, are the people who really love the maps and kind of suck at using them, and they just run them ragged, and they get all obsessive and strivy, and they're just, no, you're friggin' horrible about this, and like maybe maps were not for you or not without a lot of training and guidance of how to use them and not them be a disaster. And then you also get the people who friggin' hate the maps and God, they kind of really needed them actually. Like, no, you needed a map. And with maps, maybe you would have done a lot better. So you get all four quadrants of that and then mixes. And then actually people will move around between these during their lifetimes, which could be really confusing. They can do great without the maps for a while. And then they run into something that now nah, a map helps them with that. And other people like they do great with the maps for, you know, for a while. And then, um, you know, uh, Sorry, did I say that the other way? I may have mixed this up. Anyway, whatever, they do great with the maps. And then like they start really running into a problem of something they fix on, something they hinge on, something they solidify, and they just cannot friggin' get over it. And they just need to let them go, you know, and and just be, just be with what's going on and and learn to surf rather than like try to do the mathematics of surfing while on the surfboard. Yeah, yeah perfect. <laughs> <laughs> perfect way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be like if you're if you're making your scrambled eggs and you're trying to do the math of how much salt and pepper to put into them. Whatever. Yeah. It's yeah, such like, art. It's such flow. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, that's my summary of map stuff. Just yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Ain't nobody doing math and physics while surfing. Like no. it's just it's just not happening. Um, yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> ah! Woo! Uh, oh man, because I can't even begin telling you how important the maps were for me awakening. Well, actually, and, do tell me about yes. that. I'd love to hear it because it's you know it's validating of some of my own weird geekery. Yes, uh, yes. Even yours have been so profoundly influential, and I I can't. There's been like a dozen that have been just so just mission critical i have a maps folder in my Can you talk about those because i've been talking a lot do you mind because i would actually yeah. love to hear your take okay. on this okay because um, i i know my own takes on maps things. and people might and probably a lot of people may you know know some of my takes and your audience may know all of your takes but like i just love to hear some of them personally okay so i'll pull this one up and what um, you found useful and not useful and when and like how you yes. knew when to pick each one because that's also interesting right that meta tech yeah oh that's cool yep yep um i feel like so much of that is intuitive almost like it um like the salting of the eggs type thing um and when it, it, it almost it comes itself but then you have to graduate from the map uh, to use it in ways that both serve you continuously and also serve you with by not using it and then also serve 
other people by introducing them to it. Okay, so this would be just a very brief um, visual. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, I have a little um, threesome that I this I call this one the quad because I just threw the infinity expressing itself in the top left corner. But it's really just three maps. Um, you have the classic levels of consciousness by David Hawkins in the bottom left. You have the classic spiral dynamics. Um, that's Claire Graves. And Don Beck, Chris Cowan, also Ken Wilbur, um, bottom right corner. And then you have the top right is the raw, the channeled material, the law of one, the seven density model of consciousness. And so these three, I would say, in the last year have been the most um, profound or influential um, for me. And it sounds like you're familiar with all three of them right off the bat. Yeah, to various degrees. Actually, my, my friend Gareth was just telling me about the raw law of one stuff and a little bit. So that's the one I actually know the least well. But looking at it, it's actually very familiar tech, right? That's that's pretty similar to a bunch of other maps in that same kind of neck of the woods. You know, um, that reminds it goes all the way to Blavatsky and the Theosophists and and those kinds of people and then moving forward. So it's it's yeah um, through my new agey background and uh, my um, yeah kind of Blavatsky days. Like I have a sense of some of that stuff because it's it's in the same vein. Cool, nice, but with its own yeah. I see some distinctions there. That's really interesting. And then how do you know to move versus one to the other if they become all natural to you? Let me let me. Uh, that's a great question. I feel like. Um, um, let me let me pull up one. Can you plant flag with that question? How to move? Actually, I, I can transition. So one okay. of one of the things that what what I would do is I would take the maps and I would try and distill their essence into another map that I would generate mm. as an as an artist. And that would be sort of like, can we move on to a higher level? Okay, so this would be. Let me. I'll pull this one up. So this is one that I. Um, uh, wait a second, full screen that, and then, okay. Oh, fun. So yeah, so this one came through about, I think in March. Um, and so this begins to play on what we were talking about, which is, um, can you go from the, uh, can we use these analogies where you have this absolute source, Tao, God, Brahman, void, infinity, um, refracting itself through <laughs> this, uh, awareness, consciousness, witness, observer, seer, and, and, and exploring infinite creation, planets, earth, civilizations, people, names, forms, 10,000 things. And can you sh make the shift from the transient, from the I am the person, identity as the ultimate litmus test, shifting to this I am the witness, or I am awareness, or I am consciousness, all the way to I am this indescribable downness uh, creator, emptiness, infinitude, um, and undergoing, yeah, that, anyway, so then this was another sort of map that was generated, yeah. Uh, <laughs> cool, what fun, the dark side yeah. of the moon map, anyway. Yes, yes, and so there's that, and then I would say um, another somewhat, um, another quite, I think, good and important one um, to visualize, at least just for a second, would be um, this one has also been profoundly influential, and this one is uh, Bentinho Massaro's um, map. And so he has this uh, similar style of I am this person, um, you know, on the planet on the right, uh, more of a contracted, uh, focused 
on subject-object duality, and then this shift into the, the I am-ness, the presence energy, um, just the shift into becoming aware that I am this formless, indescribable power to know. Um, and then the shift even further into this I, solely I, just indescribable I-ness, um, awareness, and then shifting into this beyond I, indescribable infinitude, beyondness. And so this has been another um, interesting map. And so I would say this one and- That is what fun. Yeah, the maps I feel like are um, mission critical for the process, but then like you described also to not be at any point attached, but to also be interested in the, like how does infinity try to map itself? And then how does it try to awaken itself in the expression by creating these maps that then facilitate its awakening, but also that don't get attached to those maps. And so thanks for asking about that. I feel like that's the map part is really important. You know where I feel like would be a good transition for us now is into um, how do we um, take what we talked about at the beginning, which was this very practical style of how do I suffer less, feel more peace and happiness by unfreezing some of my will and sovereignty? And then how do I undergo that process of realizing myself as the ultimate or the supreme? But how do we merge that um, with the mainstream um, architectural processes? This would be a good transition to the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium, <laughs> which the EPRC, and then also e-benefactors, emergence benefactors. And so um, we'll let Dan explain this, but just on a high level, this is what we were talking about also earlier with merging science and spirituality and aiming to unlock a lot of the planetary um, finances as well and funnel it into these architectural advancements that merge science and spirituality so that as people are awakening and realizing these higher states of consciousness that there's like landing zones and there's integration for them and there's um, even at places like the DSM-5 and clinical research so let's have Dan unpack this I love this nice so I'm gonna I'm gonna go into shameless plug mode for the charity I'm now the acting CEO and board chair of emergence benefactors um, which is trying to raise literally hundreds of millions of dollars to do this kind of research. So shameless plug for the charity, but this is important. So the basic problem is that practices that can lead to what we're going to call emergent phenomena, by which we mean magical, mystical, spiritual, etc. phenomena, pick your favorite terms for these things, um, uh, we're, and we, we're hitting pretty broadly of that. So we mean everything from energetics to perceptual distortions to mood highs and lows and relative insights and ultimate insights and all of that dark nights and, and peak experiences and, and all that kind of stuff that can happen as a result of meditation, psychedelics, you know, giving birth to children, walking down the street, intensive exercise, military service, intensive training, and just being alive, right? Some people just get into this stuff for no clearly obvious reason. And sometimes when they're weirdly young, um, and so, uh, and the problem is, is that the clinical mainstream as you know, I'm, cause I'm a board certified ER doctor, at least was, I, you know, I'm not practicing anymore. So I, I retired a few years ago, but so I went through the whole clinical mainstream thing and there's literally nothing useful except a few lines that were the, the mighty, uh, David Lukoff, uh, 
um, Francis Liu and Robert Turner managed to get into the DSM in 1993. There's only a few lines that they've ever managed to get in that are helpful, and most people don't really know how to implement them or use them, that help people with this stuff if they run into the mainstream medical or mental health world. Because, you know, if you've got energy blazing up and down your spine and think you're now the god queen of the universe or whatever, like, there are no boxes to put you in that, that you're going to like in the clinical mainstream. And that's a problem because, you know, a lot of people's soteriologies, a lot of my friends um, think that it's going to be some sort of expanded consciousness that's going to save the planet. We're going to wake up and grow up and clean up and, and you know, show up and whatever to use sort of a Wilberian model of this stuff of what we're going to do. But the problem is that, you know, I hung out a shingle like 20-something years ago and said, if you're having weird spiritual experiences, I'll talk to you about them for free. And then when you do that, you get to talk to thousands of people who have had super weird experiences. And some non-trivial portion of them ran into the healthcare system, which then, from my point of view, did terrible things with them. And I totally understand why. Because if I had nothing other than my training as a doctor, I would have done terrible things to them, right? Except, and the problem is that we've never given them the boxes that they can put these people into or the data-driven management strategies or diagnostic categories that hopefully have some sort of neuroscientific pharmacological correlates. You know, if you're going to use medications, which one to use. And if you're not going to use medications, you have, you know, time-tested strategies that we know help them ground down or or you know, feel better, or be less depressed, or less hallucinatory if that's what they want to be, or whatever it is, you know. And, and so, you know, and that we we give them options that are more accepting of the possible ontologies that people like yourself and myself are comfortable swirling in, or the religious traditions they're coming from, or whatever. And we we um, you know we we help them to have better outcomes because the problem is my colleagues in you know internal you know, medicine and pediatrics and neurology and emergency psychiatry and emergency medicine and and even like orthopedics. And, you know, some of these people have weird muscle, bizarre movements, and tremors and strange kundalini stuff. They end up seeing, you know, physiatrists and, and body workers and stuff. They don't have enough frameworks. They don't have enough validation. They don't have enough diagnostic codes. They don't have enough uh, good science to really show them what to do with these people. And, um, and, and all of the tr religious traditions actually think they're the best and the fastest and the most complete and the most profound and the most true and the most helpful and the most developed and the most skillful and whatever at, at getting people to whatever their soteriological goals are. But I actually pro probably don't think any of that's true. And I'm currently fascinated by what I call the mixed martial arts model. Where basically all the traditions like karate and jujitsu and capoeira and whatever, you know, Muay Thai, they all thought they were the best. <laughs> And none of them were mixed martial arts pretty much definitively showed, I think, by countless YouTube video after countless YouTube video that a mixed martial artist of equivalent strength, weight, and training stepping into the ring with a, a fighter of a single style with equivalent strength, weight, and training is pretty much just going to kill them, right? And so I think the experiment has been done. And But with the peaceful arts, the peaceful meditative arts, I think a similar experiment needs to be done where a lot of the traditions have tremendously cool tech for handling energetic experiences, for doing something skillful with magical or, you know, entity experiences or profound shifts in consciousness or paradigm or existential whatever or ontology um, that can happen as a result of these transformative practices and experiences. But I don't think any of them like have it all as I look at all of them, because I've studied pretty widely, I see, well, that one does this one super cool. And that one does this one really well. And what I actually want to do is let's do the science on this and actually show without have smashing people's faces in, but instead what leads people 
who want to have very powerful experiences and not wreck their lives to have those, for people who just want to be able to calm down without running into powerful experiences that wreck their lives to have that, or if people run into these powerful experiences or you know that they don't relate to well, to be able to, to add value to care if they show up in a mainstream setting and to empower my colleagues in medicine who generally went into this to know good things and be able to do useful things for people, to be able to do that rather than right at the moment, they don't know much and they're sometimes kind of, or very harmful um, and kind of sovereignty violating as they take away people's rights and put them in hospitals and stuff. I actually talked to a guy about a little over a month ago, I think at this point, who was intentionally practicing very powerful meditation techniques and they got into a stage that I would call the arising and passing away. And they knew that this was a peak experience with lots of energy and incredibly precise, powerful mind. And they knew people were studying this stuff. And they walked into their local hospital. This was intentional experiences they were cultivating, right? And they said, hey, do you have a scientist that can study me, right? Because I'm having this right now. And I thought it'd be a cool research subject. And they naively thought this was a good idea. And I was like, oh no, like, so don't do this, by the way. This is not a good idea. It's not safe, right? Right now. But he was not dangerous, not a harm to self or others. He knew what he was doing. He had intentionally cultivated these experiences. And they forced him into the hospital, forced medicated to him for a day until he managed to talk his way out of it and convince him he wasn't dangerous, that this is a religious problem. This is in Canada. And that because it's a spiritual thing, they couldn't hold him against his will. But like, yeah, like, and that's just got to stop. Like, I'm sorry, like, that's not cool, right? And the problem is to stop it is going to take a staggering amount of work because for 120 years, the transpersonal kids have been knocking on the mainstream's door, unfortunately, in pretty much all the wrong ways with language that's never going to fly. I'm sorry, I don't mean to, like, if, if it, maybe Kundalini is going to be an ICD-11 billing code, I don't know, but maybe, like, convince me. But, like, until then, we probably need language that's not, you know, that could scale globally and not piss off Muslims and Christians and other what people who don't like that language because it's based on some religious tradition or whatever, you know, and so I think there is a way that the clinical world actually what it does do well is just like, hey, a gallbladder is a gallbladder and we take it out. And I don't mean to reduce spirituality to kind of algorithms and like those kinds of mundane materialistic diagnoses, yeah. but like someone's really like, hi, they, they did some cool tending retreat or whatever and now they're like not sleeping for three days and like super excited and incredibly creative but it's starting to worry their family like what is the best way to ground them down that doesn't involve meds you know i know a bunch of tricks but are those the best ones i don't know we need basic practical comparative studies for this kind of stuff and when people run into what i would call the dark night like are there good options other than meds that we could teach you know muggle clinicians to use and implement and diagnose like hey you were like super excited three days ago and you were seeing white energy coming up and down your spine and your consciousness exploded and now you're like feel like your body is dissolving and there's like you know you're terrified and you've never felt anything like this before. Yeah, well, I know what that is because I'm used to people going through that by the hundreds that I've talked to, right? And that's, you know, the A&P to the dark night cycle, as I would call it, and that you could call it whatever you like. But we need to agree on language that can scale globally and that we can come up with management strategies that scale globally to help these people that don't aren't all just force medicate them, essentially, with, you know, atypical antipsychotics, benzos, lithium, and, you know, you know, seizure drugs converted to mood stabilizers, basically. 
you know, not that those might not be shown to be incredibly helpful and the only option in certain cases, but we need, need to know what those criteria are. And we need to be, I think, a little less liberal in the application of those would be my guess. We'll see where the, what the science shows. I'm willing to be wrong. Um, but we need to do that science such that people who want to, such that we can fulfill the promise of medical ethics, which is a basic, con, you know, intelligent, data-driven, knowledgeable conversation of risks, benefits, and alternatives. So like, you know, such that when people are, you know, start meditating, what are the chances you're going to run into wild, powerful Kundalini stuff? You know, as I was telling you earlier, I talked to a guy who's literally his first meditation session ever. He had this white bolt of energy come up his spine and hit his head and it started expanding out into massive like mania territory. And now he thought he was like the unified, most enlightened, whatever person. And like, yeah, like luckily his family and girlfriend him or whatever managed to kind of ground him down. I'm kind of slightly editing the story but like you know like th th that could have gone super sideways and luckily didn't but, but but i know cases where it did go really sideways and and that's bad so like we, ne we need to do better globally in terms of public consciousness in terms of education in schools like they're teaching meditation in schools now like i was a kid when i started getting into this on weirdly small doses of meditation it can happen is it rare yes but is it zero no and ethically we need to we need to be able to handle this in some reasonable way that isn't just force medicating kids on powerful drugs i was fine without meds when i was a kid it was just weird i learned to roll with it you know but um and so so that's what the EPRC project is essentially about in a nutshell. And again, I think it's going to take a few hundred million dollars and a few hundred researchers in a few decades, because I'm willing to be honest about how hard this is. This is not going to be easy. But that's the dream. And that's what I currently spend most of my time working on, is trying to figure out how to find a complete team, how to find you know, all the money and how to, what's the plan? Like, what's a, a good plan that actually hits our core targets, which are things like the textbooks of emergency medicine, emergency psychology, neurology, a general, you know, general practice, family practice, internal medicine, um, that hits the DSM and ICD-11 or whatever it is at that point, when we finally get all this done or, you know, implementable in some way we can really feel good about, um, that, that really impacts, you know, medical board specialty question, you know, exams and core criteria. And maybe even we create a new specialty that it specializes in this because maybe it's a unique body of knowledge that the other specialties like don't have the time for. And maybe this does need to be its own integrative meditative, you know, integrative medicine board or emergence medicine or something. Um, and, and, but I have other friends who, you know, like Gino, you, for example, fascinating person who who thinks there's no way he thinks the muggles will never get this they're going to fight you tooth and nail till they'll die i'm going to totally fail to integrate this with the mainstream the apa and everybody are going to block this and they're just going to remain ignorant and suck and like be really well, intentional well, rick, about that. rick doblin and maps got through so yeah, no, there's, there's actually, I'm, I'm super inspired by Rick Doblin because they started in the 80s, right? Yeah. And and like 30-something years later, they're in their phase three clinical trials and stuff. And I find that kind of long-term vision, like, no, we're going to do this and we're going to stick it out and build an institution that can weather for that long and stick it out for the long fight and out, outlast entire generations. Because I think this is going to take generation education level change, maybe a generation and a half or something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and so, but, but that's the kind of thing that inspires me and that the EPRC people are about. And it's an amazing team, right? We've got people from, you know, Harvard and Yale and Vanderbilt and Cambridge and Oxford and, you know, all these, sorry if I didn't name your amazing university that you're from, but like all these incredible people who are like MDs and PhDs and MD PhDs and neuroscientists and psychiatrists and stuff. And, and I think we really have a shot at this. So I'm actually super excited. So that's my shameless plug. 
um, for the whole thing. And apologies if that was kind of long, but I get excited Perfect. about this. This is what I've like, this is what I pour my energy into these days is solving this problem. Cause I'm just super sick of my friends having a really hard time when they run into my other friends. Right. And, and that's not cool. We need to change that. So that's, if, if we think we're, if we think waking up, it's going to be some part of how we save the planet and psychedelics and meditation and spirituality or whatever are going to be a part of that mix. We cannot have a globally adversarial mainstream, you know, mental health and medicine world that, that I'm sorry, that's just not cool. And we need to change that now or as soon as we can and do it based on good data. Perfect. Perfect. <clears throat> it, without a doubt, without a doubt, science and the analysis of form and the scientific method and the clinical trial essence has to be without a doubt integrated into the spiritual paradigm of consciousness awakening has to be without a doubt you have to marry science spirituality you have to marry form and formlessness you have to marry physicalism with spirituality with with consciousness with awareness etc with infinity with nothingness you have to and I love this without a doubt. This seems like um, the architectures especially are so relevant, the architectural upgrades that then create a feedback mechanism. So as like Rick Doblin and MAPS have succeeded, you now see mm. a global paradigm of entheogens that's now taken a new like, whoa, like a new popular stance. And now you'll see that more and more with the popularization, actually, this would be a good question to ask you is, what would be the ideal, like you talked about a, um, a, a lexicon or a language, a nomenclature, words that would be used that are, if they're like perennial or they're spiritually um, agnostic of specific traditions. Um, That's the critical thing. Okay. Yeah. And then, but there also have these words also have to be married with science somehow. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Right. So, yeah. So what would be some of the, like, and we were, we just came fresh off of our topic on maps, uh, actually like making maps, which science would also want to like make some sort of a, a nomenclature style map plugged into its clinical trial framework. So yeah. What words slash what um, maps do you feel like would be most relevant to try and like, as we as we get more high net worth people awakened and they fund more things like what you're doing, what would be like a like a first principled approach to this being like flowered? Yeah. So first principles is actually um, I think that based on the 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 fact that I. I, I, my dream is something that is as comfortable in Tehran as it is in Rio, as it is in Shanghai, as it is in rural Alabama, which is where I am right now. You know, I want something that has that level of scalability because it has that level of clinical neutrality to it. One of the things that a lot of my clinicians do very well, there are some exceptions, is really roll with whatever ontologies people bring in. So this has to be as ontologically neutral as it possibly can be, which you can kind of argue is itself sort of an ontology, right? But it's a functional one that allows it to scale globally, regardless of you kind of have to adopt that as a frame, right? And that's what medicine does, right? Medicine, you know, teaches, you know, physicians, you know, and, you know, you know, APPs and uh, nurses and all kinds of other caregivers of all the different, you know, healthcare varieties um, and mental health providers, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, 
you know, all of the social workers, et cetera, that there is generally, and there are exceptions depending on the country that I'm actually slightly jealous of. I'll get to that. Um, that, uh, where you do meet people with whatever their ontologies are, and you've really thought about what is the essence of this. And what I know for certain is that most of the language I am most familiar with and use will not scale. Most of the language I use when I talk to people about spiritual practice, I don't think it's ever going to work. I don't think it's going to get in. I'm not married to it. I don't care. All yeah. I care is that the language work and scale globally. Yes. That's it. And if it involves, you know, every single map and every single term I care about not making it in, I am 100% fine with that as long as we help people. And I'm no guessing attachment. Most, most of it, I'm guessing the vast yeah. majority of it won't. I'm guessing a little bit of it will because some of the language I use is already kind of stripped down practical, I've, you know, energy could, you know, the sensation of energy. That's pretty neutral. It's not, I mean, it's because it's- sensation of energy. You know, or so that yeah. sensation of vibration or of tingling or of pulsing. Those are neutral terms you could use. Light is, when you see light, you see light. If you hear a voice, you hear a voice. Like, you know, you could label it a hallucination, but you're hearing a voice. And actually, if you look at the voice hearing networks and, and groups and literature, like there are a lot of people here who, who hear voices and they're doing fine, right? So you don't have to go to the level of hallucination because that's actually an ontological judgment that the thing is not real, which I don't think you actually have to do. And that's where clinical medicine kind of got itself into trouble and really alienated the crap out of, the, of a lot of spiritual traditions because it, it started getting ontological in ways that were judgmental and thus alienating. Right. And this is important. You know, this is as important to the Pentecostals, you know, that that go to church five miles from where I live as as it is as it's alienating to them as it is to the psychonaut, you know, tech brain hackers, you know, even though because they all run into the same problem is that the clinical mainstream made a judgment about them. And it was an ontological judgment that I don't think they can necessarily back up that they know for certain this is all real or all isn't all real, you know? And so I think they kind of got a little less sciencey than they think they are and kind of bought into scientific materialism a little bit more than they needed to, to really come up to do practical things like come up with good drugs, which there's a lot of cool meds out there, like that scientific materialism really helped with. And and, uh, you know, it's it's a useful frame, but it's not all, all powerful, all knowing or all helpful when dealing with humans who have hearts and minds and are complicated, as any good clinician knows. Right. And so so in terms of the language, actually, part of this, the, the linguistics project of communication project, that's probably going to you know, require some big ecumenical councils and bringing in the big religious traditions and say, hey, what language language can we use to describe this bare phenomenology that y'all are cool with? Because we don't want to piss you off. We just want to help people, you know, and I want that I want the Pope and the Catholic church and hierarchy to be as comfortable with this, you know, as shamans out in the Amazon somewhere. I don't know if we can pull that off, but but I would love to I, I would love to be able to to do something that was just that descriptive and kind of technical and precise, and then um, and then have ICD-10 and 11 codes that have that same level of just down-to-earth neutrality that isn't trying to pathologize anybody. But but that's actually going to be because I think even if we get all the science right, you know, and we really because we're actually getting some cool preliminary results with the EEG and some fMRI stuff that's been done before us, and and cool phenomenology and various management strategies for handling various things. There's already some science out there to build on, and a lot of cool tech the transpersonal kids did, you know, which is amazing. And you know, I've got these great books by 
the graphs, like the story we search for the self. There's tons of cool tech in this book, you know, like thank God for you, you know, and the work you did, but it's, it's ontologically not neutral enough. So it, there's no way it scales. Right. And wow. that's a pro so, you know, cause they did incredible stuff. So like, we've got to not make that same mistake. Cause I, I did a wow. serious failure analysis wow. on like where the amazing things that the transpersonal kids did went wrong. And that's part of it. Like, why did they, why did they fail for, you know, depending on when you think they started, if you want to go back to, you know, Abraham Maslow in the sixties or Esalen in the seventies, or all the way back to William James, the psychiatrist at Harvard who read incredible stuff and very practical stuff. And like why they totally failed to pen penetrate the clinical mainstream. A lot of it is just linguistic, right? People heard, heard whatever word Atman and you know, yeah. they were like, I don't know about no Atman. And that was it. Like your DOA, even if it's useful tech, you know, um, nothing against Atman. I use the word all the time, yeah. but you know what I mean? For sure. Um, so yeah. Wow. This has been so profound for me because um, especially as we were just talking about the importance of taking these childlike analogies and visualizations and metaphors like light prismatically refracted ascending like metamorphosis and then somehow you know they're like that that feels like it doesn't trigger um which is great and it feels like it could scale as long as there's also some sort of of the scientific um um, literacy that's like what is in these what is in red light and what would be in in orange what would be in yellow in green and and as it ascends but i also that's totally still get got a heavy layer I, I totally of, get it's it's like it, it's still it's still way up for sure it's still way up um compared to like um what would be a word for like like you say this language of phenomenology like what would be a word like a uh, mircha eliade said the hierophany right so it's like a manifestation of the sacred but again there's like what do we do with how do how does that so it'll almost be like well, a, like materialist as well and the materialists are not going to let that in a I'm manifestation sorry, like, of the sacred yeah your, your so, doa and so i've got to have something again, that DOA. is yeah like no way yeah. i'm sorry like i could i could pretty much okay. i would be i'd be okay, I'd bet so, a million dollars right now so, like so, that's so not going to make I, it i feel i feel like I, I feel like there might be something here with um Starting off with a, a <clears throat> in science would be starting off with how uh, a personal contracted energy um, could be um, neuroscientifically mapped as a uh, a, con a connectome um, that has uh, um, less. Uh, uh, openness and less universalization and less harmony. Uh, yeah, so again, suddenly, uh, it's I, so I easy to it. do. It's so uh, right? easy like, to lose. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when it's, it's yeah, funny cool. when I look at articles in the transpersonal literature, I literally want to cut out every other word like that. Uh, like from the yeah. abstracts, I would just, if I was a, uh, uh, a, an editor that was just trying as hard as I could to get this into a textbook of emergency medicine or emergency psychiatry or to reach the World Health Organization or to reach the, yeah, you know, the, I, I would slash yeah. it. I would slash like every other word in concept and say, no, 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 start again, go back to the drawing board. No, like, yeah. and I would be, it would be brutal and they would freaking hate me because, you know, and I would hate me. Like, 
in my own book and you know, mastering the core teachings of the Buddha, mastering the core teachings of the Buddha is never going to enter the clinical mainstream. Like yeah. almost, you know, I would, I would slash 80% of my book and then like the rest would all have to be redone because it's not going to work. Right. It's, I've got too much language. I've got too much overlay. I mean, some of the underlying concepts might get in there, but the vast majority of the way I wrote it wouldn't because it wasn't designed for that audience. But when you start actually designing for a clinical audience and a, and a muggle audience and a, an administrator audience and a health insurance audience and a bureaucrat audience and a national health service policy audience and a, you know, all reimbursement coders audience like there yeah. none of that's going to fly and because they're coming from all these different religions all these different backgrounds all these different assumptions and then you've got to do the weird thing we do because like you know i was practicing in rural alabama and you know a lot of people around here are very very religious i'm t you know in various ways that like maybe they're not the religion that i'm as comfortable with but i can totally meet them where they are pray with them be with them and then move to the talk to the materialist about this and that and you have to have that kind of like chameleon like capability although i must admit i was weirdly jealous weirdly jealous in a strange kind of way that's almost odd to admit as a perennialist I was reading a scientific article um, that was written in one of the very Muslim countries, and it was written for one of their local medical journals. And the first line is like, Allah is the source of all things, and all things come from Allah, and understanding of Allah is the key to health. And that was the first line of the science, or something like that, I'm kind of paraphrasing. It was the first line of this article. And of course that's what they write, because in that country, like medicine and the ontology and the religion and the government and the public consciousness to a very large degree are all on essentially the same page. And I was I was kind of jealous of the power of that. Like they could just comfortably be what sort of they hopefully most of them are and aren't being forced to be that. But actually, I don't know if they honestly are that or not. I'm not making judgments. I have no idea if they would even know um, for certain. But um, but it was there was you know it's interesting like and i think the transpersonal people and most religious people they love their models they you love your models you love the one with light and it's beautiful i thought it was super cool when i saw it i love my models and yet we they're not going to make it through you know that's that's heavy baggage that's not going to make it through the sieve or whatever of this goal and that's why nobody's been willing to give up enough of their ontologies to, to do this. I see. I see. I okay. So, so, okay. Okay. Cool. So take, I, mean? take, I do. So take me through what it's like where you have um, the scientific consensus that there's a, an individual that feels contracted energy and it's next to an individual that feels open and liberated right now psychometrically we can view this as um the the psychometric trait openness is one of those you know the, the, again that's a psychometric trait based on like filling in um uh, an analysis that's subjective of one's own um so then if you take things like biomarkers that are like your connectomics so would you say that like connectomic biomarkers might be one of the like forefront ways to objectify what is like a contracted versus a universalized energy. 
Well, actually, I would love to do the science on that and be able to give you better because the scientist in me now is coming out because you've kind of, I'm suddenly gotten into clinical scientist mode, which may be boring for some people. I apologize, but it's suddenly like that's how I'm thinking. And when I think about that, so one of the big dreams of the EPRC, yet again, another shameless plug for a big charity ask um, for a, a big nonprofit thing we want to build is called the Emergence Research Center. And what we want to do in the Emergence Research Center is actually bring in as many traditions as will be kind enough to grace our, our, our door with their presence and to bring them in and to have fMRI and high-density EEG and epigenetic and wet lab, you know, full biomarker measurement capabilities and, you know, AI on qualitative and quantitative data analysis and full biomarkers and full monitoring of these people for affect, for valence, for mood, and then the and then enough resources to actually follow these people up long stream after they leave whatever intense retreat or spiritual or meditative or hot yoga or whatever experience they did, you know? And to be able to see, to catch these experiences in real time, to be able to measure someone who is feeling some contracted trauma thing with a story that then releases and be able to measure that as much as we could possibly measure that, which I think will also involve, need to involve body electrodes and maybe even like neuromuscular sampling, like to see if there's actually receptor changes or, you know, are we going to have to put, you know, actually do nerve conduction studies on some of these people and see if there is actually free or flow of whatever. That's going to be painful. But like, that's the kind of science I want to do and dream of. And the team wants to do and dream of. And Dr. Katie Devaney dreams of running it. And uh, that's, I think, you know, 50-ish million dollars to get a really good start on that. And yep. that's not that actually that much money as biomedical research goes, like just to bring a single drug to market is like two point something billion now, 2.6 or 8 billion, right? For a single drug that might just be some copycat bullshit that doesn't really add to our clinical arsenal of utility. <laughs> and so like, you know, I just, you know, give us a, give us a 10th of that. We could do a lot, you know? And so that's actually, before, so before I answer that question, yeah, maybe, but now what I dream of is like going out of the realm of speculation and let's just friggin' do this. Let's answer these questions that people have been kicking around for decades and we're no closer to answering them really at that really hard science level. And I would love to know. And actually, Selen Adesoy, who actually did a lot of stuff with connectome harmonics is in the EPRC, as is Quentin Frerichs. And, um, you know, with Qualia, the Qualia Research, there are a number of Qualia Research totally. members that, that are, you know, EPRC members. And um, I was just talking with them, actually, it was yesterday, two days ago, when was I talking to um, Quentin? It was two days ago, actually. We were talking about an EEG study that I had done that was looking at the various ways the brain connects or disconnects and actually just making sure we spec out the Harvard. I'm going to be involved in two meditator and a scanner studies at Harvard and Martinez Imaging Center in McLean um, Hospital in the Boston, Cambridge area, uh, actually looking at some of the stuff. And we were just making sure we we that we spec out the scans to get the connectome harmonics analyses done on as I shift through various meditative states. And then we have other talented meditators come in and shift through something like those same states. And because, you know, I know how to replicate really tense states and then like dissolve them because I can do that. Like that's the kind of stuff we could look at. And then if you could catch Perfect. people doing it de novo where it's not kind of simulated, but it's actually happening to them 
in real time. That's how we're going to get those answers. And until we build those kinds of research capabilities, it's all just going to be talk. And I'm kind of sick of that. Like, let's friggin' do it. You know, if we actually care about this stuff and helping people, let's figure it out. And and like for all these people, so for cool. their kids, let's create like, uh, hey, all like shameless plug to rich people. Sorry. <laughs> like yeah. if you want your kids to grow up in a world where we actually understand this stuff well and your parents and your family and yourselves and your own spiritual journeys and your own brain hacking and ayahuasca quests and five meo journeys and whatever it is and and cool things you're doing like it would be great if we could help you to do that better help us do the science you know this is all not for profit science this is not with any industrial or you know corporate or for-profit agenda we just want to help people and this needs to be done because every single person on the team knows there's a they're there for themselves that's why they gathered they, they they've all experienced something on this path that's that the clinical mainstream would not relate to skillfully and and so we're inspired and and just fund us to do it and that's kind of the bottom line and the rest is all speculation and talk perfect so we take this like big picture visualization with this there's like six to ten trillion dollars that's currently locked up in high net worth individuals and families and we also enable them to see that it's not only going to benefit themselves and their families their kids their community, the world at large. Yeah. Um, it's it's also what is precisely going to synthesize science and spirituality. It's going to create more of a of the planet focused on the sustainable development goals and the things yep. that actually matter around the planet, as well as consciousness and metaphysics. Yeah. And so I really like the visualization of taking like the connectomics, the EKG, the microbiome. I like sort of the sweet of analysis and then having like a thousand people yeah. that are like you and me, Frank, etc., go in that are able to, let's say that we're anchoring the awakened state. And then you have sort of mainstream people that feel lots of stress, lots of anxiety, lots of depression, lots of non-harmonic biometrics, and then map a thousand of those. And then you take like a meta pattern of the data of the awakened state versus the stress state. And then you find what is most relevant to extract as the key biomarkers from both of those. And then, so it's that kind of a scientific analysis that would have to be done. Yeah. And so we're talking like $50 million just to be able to do stuff like this. Just to really get into the range. It, it could run a hundred. Sorry if I, if 50 is maybe too low, but it, it's going to be a bunch of money to have a proper team because you need, where most of the neuroscience is kind of sucked is actually in the microphenomenology. They may have measured gigabytes of data on the person, but actually asked very few questions in real time about the, what their actual experience was. I think this is what's why most of the, you know, meditator and a scanner studies are actually not that good. So I'm being a little, a little critical of my colleagues. Um, but we, you know, I've been in studies that have been guilty of the same thing. So, but like, and then to follow these people up to see what their experiences lead to in terms of practical outcomes, like that takes big teams and to qualitative data analysis take big teams and it's expensive. It's tedious. I think we need some AI that could do a lot with that, with valence analysis and other things. But also actually one of the things we're dreaming of is what we call the big data project. I actually think the vast majority of the data is actually already there in the form of Google and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and the big social media data sets and Cambridge Analytica and um, you know th these people have access because now we have a you know two plus billion people or whatever for 
however for many years, 10 or something years, they've been plugged in where we know what techniques they looked at. We know what retreats they went on. We know what books they were reading. We know what YouTube videos they were watching. We knew if they were going to yoga classes. We, we know all, or they know, I don't, not we, it's not me actually. They know at the moment, but globally that knowledge and data exists. And then we know like, hey, they went on this meditation retreat. They took the psychedelic. They tweeted to their friends this. And then like, you know, three days later, they were suddenly up at four in the morning when they're never up at four in the morning typing twice as fast as they usually do. What the hell is Kundalini? You know, and then like three weeks later, they're reading, you know, they're typing, what are the side effects of Seroquel? You know, and like we could, you know, and then like what helped them and how did they do? And like what techniques did they run into when they started their spiritual quest? And what percent killed themselves and what percent thrived and became incredible, you know, world-changing entrepreneurs and what people, you know, dwelt in their cubicles better and what people had better health outcomes and what people cost the health insurance policies less and the national health systems less and what techniques led to them costing more and what techniques led to people flipping out or getting divorced or becoming incredibly loving, compassionate humans. I think that data is already there and literally we just need to analyze it. Want to save us a whole lot of time, get us access to that data and get us the 20 or $30 million or whatever it would take to analyze it. Well, I don't know what that would cost, but it would. I think it would save us 10x um, and, and probably save us like two or three decades of having to do all the tedious, like, you know, and we still need to do some of that. We still need controlled trials, but that is a massive amount of day that could probably save us a staggering amount of time and actually just get us really good, practical, real world, already tried in the field recommendations of live human studies of the, because the, the, the people have already done the experiments for themselves. They've already sought, they've already found that it led to whatever outcomes it did. And I think there's enough data there that despite all the noise, you could still sort out a lot of signal with good data processing. So if you as the listening person happen to be someone who has access to any of that, um, let us know. We would be happy to talk with you and help with you with those analyses to make this whole project a lot faster. Another shameless plug for the EPRC. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sorry if I download pretty fast. If you're listening to this in another language, by the way, I apologize. I know I talk fast. I'm sorry. I get excited. It's part of my pathology and hopefully a little bit of charm. So, yeah, your map about how to best execute this is really strong. And I love how anchored it is in the mainstream scientific business data collection paradigm and how. Because that's that's the quickest way in, and also I love how you see it from being able to work with a lot of the funding sources that can accelerate this. I'm a huge, huge fan of this, and I feel like everything that I've been working on in the last, especially about seven or so months ago, what I was publishing around the synthesis of science and spirituality and getting it as quickly as possible into the mainstream. It had a lot to do with this data fusion of the connectome, the EKG, the microbiome, and then extracting out a meta pattern of a thousand very awakened people versus a thousand people that are suffering, depressed, anxious, et cetera. Sure. And then, right. Yeah. And so um, I feel like you are doing exactly what I was excited about and writing about and trying to visualize. And so now it's even easier for me to figure out how to pool resources into that. We've got the team already. We've yeah. got the plan. Like we just, at this point, we really just need the cash. Like 
Yeah, we have enough to do all of that. That's I've already talked to geneticists at the CDC and and you know senior geneticists at Johns Hopkins, and we've got mi microbiologists. We've we've got that. Um, we've got people who have already done epigenetic data stuff. I mean, yeah, like that's great. I already have people <laughs> that are that I'm that are coming up that I feel like would want to that are involved in the high net worth space that would want to fuel this because of that level of um, serious readiness and a teamness and a white paperness and that those variables um, visionariness. So um, that's great. Cause I, I will uh, let's see where a couple of those intros can go off the bat and then where, where they will funnel beyond that. Because I, I know that there are people that are listening right now that have connections to people like what we're describing and um, you can go to Dan's website and grab his email and make an introduction as well. And because this is it, I mean, this is our, this is our gateway to mainstream and the accelerative path to it rather than the sort of, Hey, let's, uh, let's hands off, relax in the awakening. And as people awake, as people somehow stumble upon it themselves, they'll come to us versus how do we go in with the architectural understanding of how to merge science spirituality and make it clinically neutral and ontologically neutral and to ramp things up um that's sort of a like a fanning the flame uh rather approach and and i like that approach and i feel like it really resonates with people so you are you are it in terms of that big pillar for Thanks. us to, i love that yeah, I'm sick of, sick of playing around. And so it's like just, and it, it's amazing how many people you just tell them that and they're like, of course, and then they just join and they're like, hell yeah. Like it's something that's needed to happen. And people have tried things like this. It's not like people haven't tried phenomenological approaches they have or neuroscience approaches. They have there's lots, but but um, if there's a, an equivalent dream that is quite as big and bold and brash and dedicated to hitting the hard, tedious targets that I think most people just like throw up their hands and go, uh, you know, like getting board questions into board question exams and getting it into the core curricula of various medical specialties and, you know, petitioning, you know, the American, you know, board of medical specialties or that's, you know, the, the different specialty boards or, um, you know, or changing billing codes. That's the kind of tedium most people don't want to do, but it's going to take that. And so we're de dedicated to the grinding, painful institution building and changing tedium as well. Like not just the cool, flashy findings. No, we're, we want to yeah. find the money to change the bureaucracies at that core functional day-to-day paperworky kind of level, right? Which sucks and is horrible and yet desperately needs to happen. And that's what we've decided to do. So if you're interested in a long, painfully expensive project that will involve a lot of tedium and bureaucracy and hard targets and hard conversations and hard lobbying and all that, please talk to us. But I think that's what it's going to take. Anything else I think is just, is fun yeah. and flashy, but I don't think it's real. Yeah. I'm really excited for one specific in introduction for this for you um, because the the very nature of this this person is so aligned with what is unfolding, but they're they're the exact essence of how do I put it into a place that's trusted that's actually going to do it, which is basically the number one question that these high net worth 
families have is um, how do we find what is actually going to do it in a trusted way? Um, yeah. That's what I found is is the key. Yeah. Well, I've got a, I've, you know, I spent, um, so we spent about a year building the EPRC white paper and plan and then spent most of the last eight months or so building the container to hold the cash to get to just get down to brass tacks. Um, we have an impressive board. We have some very uh, well-built, diligent bylaws and procedures. We have, you know, a, a, an accountant and auditing and all of that stuff that we've just gotten on board. We have, you know, um, developing very uh, reasonable grant allocation and monitoring policies and stuff. And so we've really gone out of our way to build the kind of structure that can responsibly hold that kind of money and keep it and be a, a responsible custodian of it and distributor of it and monitor what we're doing. And we're very transparent about what our plan is. A lot of these organizations like have sort of secret plans or big teams, but you can't really figure out what they're going to do. You can read our whole friggin' long, tedious white paper and figure out exactly what we're going to do and what it costs and why we think it costs that it's you know it's in there and and the, there are also places where the plan needs a few more people and we're honest about that like where we like we don't have enough medical anthropologists yet we need them to make sure that we go in understanding the needs of all needs of all the involved tribes like what what does the APA need to let us in what does the World Health Organization need to let us in we have some pretty good ideas we've had some preliminary conversations. Um, but yeah, like some of that really needs to be done very thoughtfully and with a lot of nuance. What do insurance companies need? You know, like what does the pharmaceutical industry need to play nicely with this stuff? Like that's important. And so, totally. yeah, like these are the kinds of hard questions that that we have tremendous respect for all of these groups. And they're all trying to help in their way. We're willing to give them the benefit of the doubt as well as be appropriately wary, you know, trust but verify kind of thing. But um. Yeah. So like, uh, also, so if you're, if you look at the EPRC white paper and you're like, I have a skill or a talent that you don't have a name under that slot and you say, these people are needed, please get in touch with us as well. Because I think we've got about 70 of the, I think 300 or so people we're going to need to do this. And so, um, we've also gotten to the phase where if we were holding more cash, I think there are more people who would then, um, turn more attention our way just to be as a blatant plug of practicalities. Um, yeah. And all these links are found in the bio below. So you can find the EPRC, you can find eBenefactors, you can also find Dan's website, you can find his book. And if you have any questions about any of this, I would love to talk with you. Perfect. Here's what I think that we'll do also is um, one of the big things that's come up for me is also shifting us away from what is the the island model towards the cohesive model. I like the way of, of funneling also people around the world that are doing this into a, like a, a best practices mm -hmm. unit um, that's cohesive around synthesizing science, spirituality, and getting it into the mainstream scientific architecture. Yep. Yeah. So that's another way of synthesizing. So what I, what I feel like I know where I feel like where I want to, um, to take our 
exploration in terms of like what we can do next um, introduction wise and how that could funnel into the success of this. And then what I feel like we could do also conversationally is maybe maybe like once a once a quarter or whatnot, we can revisit because something that we were talking about with um, with Frank and with other people is doing this um, like quarterly on a on a cadence where we're undergoing a process of of what would be the ideal way to like we were talking about with that met like the meta pattern of a thousand people that have experienced some sort of awakening versus thousand that are still in some depressive contracted state and getting a biometric meta pattern and whatnot mm -hmm. and um and just revisiting where we're at with the progress and updating people around that while we're simultaneously dynamically iterating what is what is optimal um yeah so that's another thing to to explore together and yeah that sounds yeah. like tremendous fun i'd be way up for that fuck yeah awesome awesome do you feel like the intention is closing for the for the show that felt good? like a really good wrapping up place if that feels good to you did it that does, feel good yeah. was did, that does. may have been different topics than you were thinking about talking about but was that did that work was you're all right oh my with that? gosh it was so perfect it's just indescribably perfect I well, that was it. awesome thank you um, i, I had a really it appreciate the opportunity and your enthusiasm and interest in getting this out there. That's it's yeah. Yeah. Much gratitude. Me too. Me too. Because you're the, you're the embodied version of what people so badly want to happen, but don't know how to do the hard work to get it into the science and the engineering and the mainstream architectures. And so let's funnel that energy more into you and the team and, and the white paper and and the clinical trials and the nomenclature and all of that good stuff and the proper high net worth funding and all this stuff. So let's get that let's get that rolling deeper. And I feel like a lot of our our audience got the chance to take away some of the initial conversation around um, just awakening in general and what it's like to become unfreeze more of that will and become more sovereign. But also we went into the beauty of the highest level metaphysical abstraction. But then we also were like, how do we do this in mainstream society today? And so we really navigated a beautiful mosaic. And that's what I love about the interviews most of all is that specific aspect to it. So thank you for also being able to anchor it in, which is exactly what we need. Thanks. That was awesome. Okay, great. Yeah. Bye. Beautiful. Yeah. I'll let's let's ha I'll wrap the show and then one sec, Dan. Let me wrap the show awesome. and then I'll end the broadcast. We'll stay in the studio for a moment. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We love you so much. Really grateful. We would love we would love for you to check out the links in the bio below. Again, all of Dan's links are down there. Go and check them out and support in whatever ways you can. And also like the video helps the algorithm comment below with your thoughts. We would love to hear from you on some of your thoughts around the episode. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't yet, and also share the video if you feel like there were segments in here that were really powerful. Share it with your friends, family, et cetera, online. And that is all. Again, infinite love. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks again, Dan. And I'll go ahead and end it. We'll stay in the studio. Bye, everyone.